Namaste, yogis and friends. I'm Kino McGregor. And I'm Tim Feldman. And we would like to welcome you to Miami Life Centers podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Kino. And I just want to thank you for joining me for this session. Let's initiate the space with the opening prayer. And we'll do the Om together. And then if you'll repeat after me for the traditional Ashtanga Yoga opening prayer to initiate the space of our journey together. So if you'll bring your hands together. Swatma Sanda Shita Swatma Sukava Bode Sukava Bode Nishreya Se Nishreya Se Jangali Kayamane Jangali Kayamane Samsara Hala Hala Shantie, Moha Shantie, Abahu, Abahu, Purushakaram, Purushakaram, Shankachakrasi, Shankachakrasi, Dharinam. Sahasra Shirasam Sahasra Shirasam Shwetam Shwetam Pranamami Pranamami Patanjalim things that people often ask me is what the key is to maintaining a regular practice. So, you know, I've been practicing the Ashtanga Yoga method for 20 years, give or take, and yoga has been in my life for longer than that. And I recently said that to someone and they quickly asked me, well, how old are you? You know, when did you start? Did you start when you were five? No. Um, if you can do them, I'm born in 1977, so I'm 41 and I've been practicing Ashtanga for about 20 years. I did my first class when I was 19 years old. It was in an Ashtanga class and for the first three years or so that I was practicing yoga, it really wasn't an intensive practice. It was sort of this experience where I dropped in on a class and I thought it was kind of cool. And I treated it sort of like something interesting, like a novelty, kind of like an interesting item, you know, that I wasn't really sure how to use, but I knew I liked it. 
So I started doing yoga out of books and I read some books on the Shivananda style and I started to just play around with the poses mostly by myself. But I would say they didn't have a practice. I dropped in occasionally and experimented uh, you know, with the poses, but I didn't really have what you could call to be a yoga practice. I was interested in yoga, but I was interested in yoga in the way that you sample things at, you know, a deli counter when you say, can I have a little, a little slice of, you know, the little sample of the, the broccoli or the Brussels sprouts or the sweet potato or whatever looks interesting for you, you know, and you have a sample of that. So I was sort of treating yoga like a sampler platter and I didn't really have a practice. It wasn't until I joined my very first Ashtanga yoga class that I really started to understand what it meant to have a practice. Still at that time, I, I, I wasn't like I made a decision, now I'm going to devote my life to the practice of yoga. I still only had the intention to really do yoga, Ashtanga yoga, maybe two days a week. I don't know if any of you have ever had that thought run through your mind, you know. Yoga could be a nice activity, maybe on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know. Um, and that leaves time for sort of having a really good weekend uh, within the space between the Tuesday and Thursday. And then the Wednesday was the day to, well, recover from yoga. Because one of the things that people don't really tell new students about yoga is that, you know, after your first class, you're going to wake up and you might not really be able to walk because your hamstrings are going to be so sore and you're going to feel, you know, good for having done something with the body, but you're going to need to get back to another yoga class and then keep going, pretty much. And we have you hooked for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, and that hook really is the essence of practice. And I, I felt that first hook in my first Ashtanga class. And, and what that really meant for me was that I felt good enough to make me want to come back and make me want to submit myself to another two-hour Ashtanga Yoga Primary Series class. And I started to do this to the degree that Eventually, I joined a six-day-a-week traditional Mysore-style Ashtanga yoga practice. And this is the practice that I've maintained for about 20 years. And a lot of people are really impressed with that. Like, wow, how'd you do that every day? You know, you woke up one morning and you had the flu. Did you practice? Yeah, I practiced almost every six-day week minus the moon days and, you know, the one day a week off and ladies' holiday. We've got to take those days off. You know, I've done that for about 20 years and people are usually really impressed with that. And for me, I'm almost baffled that people are impressed with it because once I took on the mantle of practice, it was a little bit like I was a child and I finally understood that I should brush my teeth every day. So it wasn't like, I mean, imagine if you brushed your teeth every day and you were 18 years old and you went to the dentist and your dentist was like, Wow, how did you accomplish this heroic feat of discipline? Are you telling me that every morning and every evening you brushed your teeth? Did you also floss? You flossed. Wow, you're a special one. Did you use the tongue scraper also? Yeah, I mean, now we're getting too dental. Um, but, but you see what I mean? So for me, it was very much like that. I had, I had already somehow associated the ritual of practice with the ritual of self-care. So it, it was never this thing that I'd taken on like a penance, that I'd, 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 I'd somehow intuitively understood that practice was an act of self-compassion. In the same way that brushing your teeth is an act of self-compassion. I mean, if you could trade brushing your teeth every day for five years or a root canal, which is better? Definitely choose brushing your teeth. I'm an advocate of good dental hygiene, as you can see. Um, and in the same way, I'm an advocate of practicing every day because I feel like this is good 
emotional, physical, spiritual hygiene. And it's something I felt almost instinctively. Within the first few months of me practicing, I started to see the impact in the quality of my interactions with other people, in the quality of my choices about my life. I started to just have this kind of microcosm that I viewed everything in that was this kind of uh, very specific view and it was the yogi's mindset. And this really set me off on the, the, the long-term path of practice. The demand to practice six days a week in the Ashtanga Yoga method is extremely difficult for many people to swallow because it's a whole new habit. To create a new habit pattern at whatever age you are requires a huge commitment to change your life. I think the reason why perhaps it was easy for me is at the time that I started Ashtanga Yoga, I was desperate for a life change. I knew that I wanted something to qualitatively change the direction of my life. And if I look back now, I can see that, it, 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 that, that this, the sort of poignancy of emotions, was my own emotions, was kind of driving my life into what you could call a dead end. And I very much wanted to make a U-turn. I wanted to turn away from that into something I didn't know what. So I turned to the Ashtanga practice and then this notion of, well, you've got to turn up six days a week and you've got to do this practice. I, I finally began to have something that could support me and provide sustenance for my desire to you know, make that U-turn, to focus on something other than the, the emotionality that, that, that's so easily triggered in everyday life. At that point, I didn't really know what was overwhelming me. I didn't realize that it was my own emotions, my reactivity, my past behavioral patterns, all of the hooks and all of my attachments and desires that were sort of running my life subconsciously. I didn't realize that at the time. I can look back now and I can see that. And I can see that the antidote to all of that is practice, practice, and really more practice. So over the last 20 years of my life, I haven't, not only have I done Ashtanga yoga, but I also have a meditation practice and I've also done, which I recommend for everyone, uh, you know, counseling sessions with a qualified therapist. And one of the things that was really astounding to me was that without the foundation in spiritual practice, without the foundation in the notion of committing yourself to daily discipline, all of the esoteric talk and uh, sort of you know empowering talk that I'd experienced or interacted with either in a self-help book or in the therapist's office was totally ungrounded. It was nothing real. It was just this sort of pie in the sky. You should think more positively about yourself or try to think happier thoughts about yourself and your world or focus on the quality of your thoughts. Send others love and light, you know? And without the foundation of the practice, it all felt like fluff to me, fluff. You know, sure, love and light. What's that going to do for me? When I feel really angry, am I supposed to send love and light to myself and the people who I am really angry at? You know, what am I supposed to do when I'm feeling really depressed or when I'm having a panic attack? Who's going to send me love and light then? You know, what am I supposed to do? I have a love and light button on my phone and then click that. It'll start going like and then I'll be covered in, you know, unicorns and, and rainbows and fairies will come in and sprinkle pixie dust and then Prince Charming will walk in. I mean, if you're expecting that, there's no app that will deliver that, you know, and, um, and, uh, and, and, and the only real solution that I found is practice. So what is practice? What defines practice? Because this is one of the things we have to understand. First of all, the fact that you're here now 
I would wager to say that somewhere in your heart there is a desire to make that U-turn away from the, the focus on material existence, away from addiction to sensory pleasure, away from the perpetual hook in emotionality into a more peaceful life. I would wager to say that that yearning is already in your heart, that in some way you have already gotten a distaste for the material world and its impermanence and its inability to deliver permanent happiness. I would say in some ways you're probably already even perhaps turning or on the path of orienting towards the spiritual. So you are already are on the path of practice. And that's something to really pause and recognize because in the billions of people that are in this planet right now, inhabiting this planet, we as a species are not that interested in making that U-turn, perhaps because we haven't reached that critical mass yet. There's an interesting story that, uh, that I'd like to tell you about that, and I hope that one of us here um, you know, uh, play a role in, in, in sort of acting out this story. So there's a, a, there's a story about monkeys, and we are so much like monkeys. I actually don't really enjoy monkeys very much because they make me see the discomfort that I have with our animal nature of humanity. It's like when you look at monkeys, you can see how similar we are to them when they're, they're scratching their itches and sniffing each other's behinds and figuring out where each other is in the pecking order. I feel it feels so close to that in our animal nature. So it actually brings up a discomfort with me. Um, so maybe I've ruined monkeys for you. And if so, I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, please continue to enjoy the small fuzzy creatures. Um, so there's a story about these monkeys and there are monkeys in the forest and monkeys are in the forest and there's a group of monkeys and they find sweet potatoes growing naturally in the forest. It's actually a true story. I'm not sure which forest it is. So the group of monkeys, they have a time honored tradition of how they've always eaten sweet potatoes. The sweet potatoes grow in the center of the forest on a beautiful tropical island and they pick up the sweet potato which is covered in dirt and then they uh, bite the sweet potato and find uh, that they have to spit out the dirt and it's quite a tedious process and they can't really get much sweet potato out of the you know sweetness out of the sweet potato and can you imagine biting a sweet potato covered in dirt spitting out the dirt trying to keep the part of the sweet potato that was in fact still edible I don't know how they eat raw sweet potatoes but you know uh, they Apparently they can digest them. I wouldn't recommend that for human beings. So maybe there is a difference between humans and monkeys. We at least need to soak them and do something fun to them first. So now if you think about it, here you have, so here they are. So maybe they get, you know, one third of the sweet potato is actually turned into something edible. Well, there was one monkey, a female monkey, no less, um, who, who somehow grabbed the sweet potato and she had an idea, a stroke of genius you could say. She walked down or, or you know, crawled down to the ocean and prior to eating the sweet potato, she washed the monkey, or not the monkey, the sweet potato. <laughs> Hopefully maybe she washed herself also. It could be handy, wash your hands on the sweet potato, right? Maybe it took, you know, without being gender biased, maybe it took a woman to figure that one out. Right? So wash the sweet potato, then she ate it. Now, what do you think happens with all the other monkeys? Do you think they celebrated what happened? Oh no, they started to make fun of her. They threw things at her, they abused her, right? And they sort of said, you know, you're strange, you're weird, you're other. And then, they, she, but she, you know, she knew, I'm eating the whole sweet potato, this is so much more efficient, make fun of me all you want. 
it tastes better. I'm gonna keep washing my sweet potato. So sooner or later, one other, one other, one or few other monkeys came over and started to try what she did. So they washed the sweet potato and they ate it. And then they also were like, hey, this is much better. Did the monkeys accept them? Oh no, they then, the majority of the monkeys continued to ridicule this small group of monkeys that was washing the sweet potato and eating the sweet potato until there were 100 monkeys. And this theory is called the 100th monkey theory. And there were 100 monkeys that got together. And as soon as they reached the threshold of 100 monkeys, do you know what happened? All the monkeys started to bring the sweet potatoes down to the ocean edge and wash the sweet potatoes. And what's even more interesting than this, not only all the monkeys on that island, but all the monkeys on all the surrounding islands of the same species made the switch then at the 100th monkey threshold. So the reason why I'm telling you this is that I hope that somewhere in our billions of people who are inhabiting this planet, known as the human beings, our species, I don't know if it's the hundredth human being, the thousandth human being, or the millionth human being, but I hope at some moment every single human being will take up sincere spiritual practice that will go to our, the, the shore of our unconscious mind and will wash off our thoughts every morning and will engage in that sincere effort of spiritual practice. I don't know what it'll take, but it's been my commitment to share that vision with people, practitioners all over the world to hopefully reach that threshold because I believe the planet would be a better place if we all practice every single human being on this earth, that we'd be better caretakers, not only of the planet, but also of ourselves and our, you know, our, our immediate surroundings, our bodies, our friends, our families, all of that. So, so, so this is the essence of, 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 of the real kind of boon or, or gifts of practice. But in order to understand that, in order to reach that threshold of the millionth human being or the hundred millionth human being, until every, every person begins to think about mindfulness, practice, spiritual orientation, we have to understand what practice is. So if we look back traditionally, uh, there are two main texts that I want to draw your attention to when we think about practice. First, we have Patanjali. Patanjali is the author of the Yoga Sutras about 2,000 years ago. And this is kind of the perennial text on the inner journey of the yoga practice. And the, word, the Sanskrit word for practice that Patanjali gives is abhyasa. And abhyasa is a really important word because if we don't understand abhyasa, then we might think that practice can be anything we want, right? So we'll use the example of brushing the teeth again. There's a certain discipline that's required when you brush your teeth. You've got to hit every single tooth, right? If you manage to not brush one tooth, that one tooth has a proclivity towards getting a cavity. And then you'll go to your dentist and then have you ever done that like wash where they show you you don't really get that tooth very much. You go home and you recommit yourself to washing that tooth. You're going to ring, ring, wash that tooth. Well, in the same way, there's an element of discipline, which is included in abhyasa. Abhyasa is, as Patanjali says, abhyasa vairagya abhyam tanirodaha. Abhyasa is presented in the yin and yang, abhyasa, practice, effort, discipline in the yin and yang or the yang to the to the to the yin of vairagya non-attachment abhyasa vairagya abhyam tan nirodaha with the intention to create the state of nirodaha stillness stillness so this is what we're after peace stillness of the mind a u-turn away a turning away from anger a turning away from 
not necessarily anger, but giving yourself over to anger, uh, uh, turning away from giving yourself over to desire, to hankering towards too much pleasure, to the, the, the sort of addictions of the material world, the attractions of the material world, uh, are turning away from that. And instead, we're after Nirodaha. Well, what is Nirodaha? And why is it so difficult to attain? Well, as I said before, if we think about the human beings as this whole, as, as a tribe of monkeys, and here we are as sort of a collection of, of monkeys, all of our patterning, what we've been doing with our sweet potatoes is we've been eating them all dirty. And what that looks like is when, you know, when there's anger, we have conditioning to act out our anger. We have conditioning to yell at other people. We have conditioning to go to someone who, who's sort of the source of our anger and, 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 and sort of bludgeon them with our emotions. And when we have anxiety, we're, you know, we're, 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 we're more likely to act that out than we are to just sit with our discomfort. When we have happiness, we're so likely to hold on to that happiness that it breaks our heart when it goes. We have, we have very little global, societal, and even individual history in creating a long-standing pattern of sitting with discomfort. We are uncomfortable with discomfort as a species, and we search for ways to alleviate that discomfort by launching wars with other, you know, with other people on an individual scale, launching wars with other nations on a, on a grand and, and, and sort of a nation-state scale. And, and in our minds, we wage wars with ourselves. And, and instead, the whole purpose of practice, of abhyasa, is to create a disciplined approach to how we work with that world of discomfort, the discomfort of our own emotions, the discomfort of the irresolution that is an inevitability in our world. So what I mean by that is the world is constantly changing. The world is there to provide impermanent happiness and impermanent suffering. And it's there to trigger all sorts of stuff ranging from anger to anxiety. All of that is natural and real and heartbreak is natural and real. And our teaching in terms of practice is to give you the tools to deal with that. So when we look at abhyasa, vairagya, abhyamthan, nirodaha, the promise of practice is not that you'll never feel angry again. The promise of practice is not that you'll never feel anxiety again. And this is really important because in spiritual circles and especially in the yoga world, there is a lot of fear around anger. And there's a lot of fear around what people would call negativity or negative emotions. So that people who feel angry, sometimes rightfully angry when their boundaries have been violated or when they have been victims of abuse or trauma or when they recognize injustice and speak out against injustice in the world with, with what is what is you know a valid emotional expression of anger many people in the yoga world are sort of most likely to say oh you know why are you being so negative why can't we just focus on what's positive and and denying the anger so then so then we end up with this oh well so if yoga equals nirodaha then i should never feel anger again that is not nowhere in the textual historical or traditional teachings of yoga. What Patanjali promised, abhyasa vairagya abhyamthan nirodaha, meaning that if you practice, if you practice, if you commit yourself to the effort of spiritual practice and discipline, and you simultaneously understand non-attachment, then when your anger arises, because it will come again, your anger, your sadness, your anxiety, it will rise again. When it rises again, you will know how to remain peaceful amidst 
all of that storm that's arising. Patanjali doesn't promise there'll not be any more storms, but Patanjali does promise that you'll be able to find a place inside of yourself that is transcendent of all those storms. And that's an important thing because even though every emotion is intelligent and valid and brings with it a wisdom, acting out on those emotions, acting them out as something that yeah, you know, you follow and you just get a hook and you go with it. Acting out is part of the reason why we need to take that U-turn. I don't know about you, but uh, if, if you think back to the last time you got hooked on anger, can you remember that? Something really made you mad? And, um, and, you know, if you then decided to act out on that anger, how'd that go? Not so well, huh? I mean, I think about that myself. I'll share with you kind of an embarrassing story that happened to me, you know, a, a very yeah, long time ago, about a couple hours ago. Um, <laughs> you know? Um, so one of the things that can make your reservoir of being able to tolerate and, uh, and sit with abhyasa, vairagya, you know, uh, strength and steadiness of mind and non-attachment is physical pain. Um, and not too long ago, I got a really bad burn on my thigh, and uh, you know, no, you know, no, just I walked up to my husband's motorcycle and then burned my thigh. It was a really bad, um, almost a really bad, what they call a partial thickness, second degree burn. And I just got a treatment on it today, and it was very painful. And um, I'd forgotten how painful the treatment was on the burn. And uh, I just remember it looked, it was seemed to be uh, uh, healing better after the treatment. And uh, I was in a lot of pain uh, when I left the the treatment center and it was radiating and I was holding ice on it and trying to remain detached to the pain and sort of investigating the pain from a from a non non-personal perspective sort of investigating the exact point that the pain was radiating outward and noticing that while the ice was in fact helping I was shivering now on my thigh I should probably remove the ice and so I was doing this as I was driving and then um, I uh, there was a sort of a, a, a block in the lane ahead of me and I I, I um, wanted to put my turn signal on and I felt this immediate rage at everybody who would not let me out and it, it was not their fault you know but I just felt this rage come up why do people not drive in a more conscious way? Can't they see I'm suffering in here? And <clears throat> I want to get out. And then there was a break. And I don't know about you, but this is something maybe uh, extremely annoying in that situation, that as, uh, just as I found a break, the person behind me was faster. And they, and they went out before me. And, um, you know, uh, <laughs> the embarrassing part was I, right, I, 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 uh, I gave them the middle finger salute. That was the embarrassing part. Um, so that's a full disclosure. So yogis still get angry and all of that. And uh, you know, after the the car went on, they didn't honk at me, and I uh, and then I realized I was hooked. I realized, oh, I'm hooked on anger now. And it was about you know a good minute, uh, which is not not so long, but enough for me to spread a little rage out in the world and you know um, engage in quite you know, responsible yogic action while driving. And, uh, and, and so anyhow, I, 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 you know, I, I decided that I would uh, not change lanes and just sit there for a moment and enjoy being stuck. And so I sat there and realized, oh, I'm hooked and I've gone off this and I've shot somebody the bird and I don't even know them and why. And I, I realized I could trace it all the way back to the pain that was radiating out of my thigh and that I had very little reservoir of, of, of sort of detachment and I had very, very little left. 
So then I sat there and I, I, I felt embarrassment and shame and guilt and all of that and simultaneously went through a process of forgiveness and recognized well I'm in a lot of pain, it's okay. And then I really prayed that that person didn't see me, you know, uh, and that they didn't ruin their day and that they just carried on. Um, you know, and then that, that's all we can do. So that's evidence of the, the, the fallibility of yogis. As you can see, I'm not perfect. That was probably one of a rather innocuous, um, you know, hook that maybe everyone can identify with. And then the second thing is how do you make that U-turn? How do you have the reservoir to be able to see, hey, I'm hooked? The self-consciousness, the mindfulness to realize, wait a minute, I'm hooked in anger and I'm running down that road. And how do you have the, the, the presence of mind and the strength to be able to pick yourself back up, turn your direction towards something else, and then begin again and work through everything from anger, guilt, shame, to forgiveness, to understanding, to compassion, to, you know, uh, to peace. All, all the way through just a few moments. How do you do that? You have to have a foundation in personal practice. You can read a thousand self-help books, but without serious, sincere spiritual practice, the quality of the mind will always be elusive. You'll always be out there thinking that by saying one affirmation, then everything will be okay. It's not, that's not the case. Like it's the same way that doing one pose from one tutorial isn't going to make you a master of that pose. It's consistent practice over years that slows the cycle down. So the other thing I wanted to, to share with you today was a reading from the Gita. And one of the readings from the Gita that I thought was important, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bhagavad Gita, uh, this is a story of the warrior prince Arjuna, who is about to enter a pivotal battle. And in the moments before the battle, he has prescience and is shown uh, the way the whole battle will transpire by Krishna, who is his charioteer and also an avatar and a manifestation of the universal principle of God or the divine. So in this moment, after, in chapter 6, the chapter on Sankhya, uh, after Arjuna is, is, is saying to his teacher who, that the practice of controlling the mind is extremely difficult and the idea of abhyasa, of committing yourself to this disciplined nature of both practicing detaching yourself, depersonalizing all of those episodes and committing yourself to the rigors of spiritual practice is difficult, then Krishna answers, so we have Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, the Krishna answers, Asamsaya Mahabaho, O mighty armed one. And so this is important because now Krishna addresses Arjuna, not as just any person, O mighty warrior. And by doing this, he, he validates his question as though Arjuna is saying, hey, this is hard. And so he's saying, O mighty armed one, yes, it is hard. But he's recognizing and, call upon, and calling upon the warrior nature of Arjuna. So in the story of the Gita, we as yogis, we're not supposed to identify with Krishna. If you haven't figured that out yet. We are supposed to identify with Arjuna. We are supposed to be warriors on the battlefield of our mind, battling with that hook of anger, battling with that hook of anxiety, of depression, of negativity, of negative self-talk, and all those things which are stored inside of ourselves. So we, here we are, and we can hear Krishna addressing each and every one of us, each and every one of us, Mahabaho, O mighty armed one, O valiant warrior. You know, you can do this. Is what he's saying. You got this. Have you not defeated many others in battle? Are you not courageous and valiant? Surely, too, you can face the battle of the mind, right? So then we have, then he says, O oh, mighty armed one, it is difficult. It is undoubtedly very difficult to curb the restless mind. 
but it is possible by constant practice and detachment. In the Sanskrit, abhyasena, to kanteya, which is, which is a abhyasena, abhyasa practice. Kanteya is another word for Arjuna. It's a personal name for Arjuna. Vairagyena chagrate. Then we're talking about the idea that here we are at the pivotal battle and the tools for facing that battle, for being in the heat of it, again, we're presented with practice. And the notion that this image of being in the thick of it, in the thick of battle, and calling upon the tools of abhyasa, vairagya, to be able to lead you to the state of yoga, the state of equanimity, the state of the spiritual practice. This is what it's about. It's not that you'll never be in battle again. Because again, we're meant to identify with Arjuna. We're meant to identify with being on the battlefield, being in the thick of it, being hooked and figuring out how we can apply the tools of practice into liberation. So when we think about asana, what I want you to think about in terms of asana is what constitutes practice in asana. Do you think that you need to be floating up into handstand in order to practice? Do you think that? Is there some part of you that feels guilty that you're not doing it? You feel, oh, I think I should be. For those of you that are yoga teachers, it's worse. You know, as soon as you become a teacher, you're like, oh, I'm a teacher. I should be better at this. You know, then you put all this pressure on yourself. Let me try to put both legs behind my head and press up into a handstand and do crazy backflips while I go up and down stairs on the side of a building. You know, and then, you know, and then we think, oh, this is practice. This is not practice, it's performance. Practice is an internal experience and has nothing to do with the shape of the asana that you make. Practice, the real practice, is a walk that you take hand in hand with God. It's something nobody can see from the outside. It's something that has a quality of the transcendent and the eternal. And when we fall into this game of competition, oh, judging our bodies, we're hooked again. And then we're hooked again. Here we are. So before it was, I don't fit into the right size jeans. Now it's, I don't press up into handstand fast enough. So we, under, so we understand that we're taking that same metric of judgment, self-talk, self-directed negativity, and bringing it into the field of practice. So what do we do when we recognize that? This is why we need the practice, because in the safe laboratory of practice, if you find yourself, oh, judging yourself, rushing to press up into handstand and do these crazy asanas, you can train yourself to make that U-turn, to make that shift within the practice. Then it'll be easier in your life because you've put a few, a few drops in the reservoir of spiritual practice. You'll be able to make that U-turn. Not, maybe not right away, maybe not a minute, maybe it takes you three days, maybe it takes you a year, but you'll be able to dig yourself out of the hole, you'll be able to turn, but only if you have the foundation in practice. So what defines practice? Well, abhyasa, we understand that it should have an element of discipline. It should have an element of difficulty. There should be something difficult about it. But what is difficult, right? So we think, oh, so it is about handstands if it's supposed to be difficult. Not like that. Difficulty means sometimes giving up something you're too attached to. So if you love doing all kinds of crazy strength moves, sometimes the difficulty of practice is letting go of crazy asana and instead just focusing on the breath. Sometimes when life is difficult, how many of you have been through, and I'm sure we all have, periods 
where life has been really, really difficult, where everything around you has been challenging, maybe a, a, a parent or a family member has been gravely ill for a period of time, or maybe you've met with difficulty in a relationship or suffered you know, a devastating loss, lost a job, or been you know, kicked out of school or something like that, or, or lost a relationship. Life is difficult at that moment. It requires so much effort to get on your mat. That's enough. Just being there. Whatever happens is good enough. If life is easy, then I invite you to look for your challenges in your practice. Look for places where things make you feel discomfort. Go in and then practice when you feel hooked in your practice, in the asanas. Practice making the shift so that you can, you can you know, call upon those moments of, in difficulty, in difficult moments of your life. We need so much practice because these patterns are not only deep within ourselves, they're deep generationally in terms of our family and our ancestry, and they're deep and entrenched within the human race. So we have a collective, you could say, karma that is somehow our price to pay and our, 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 you know, our, our, our life to really, our cross to bear in this life, you could say. And then we find out that we have a choice, that we're not a victim to it. It's not happening to us, but that through the vehicle of practice, through the vehicle of practice, we can find you know, a light, a light amidst that darkness. And we can follow that light. And the promise of the practice, again, is not that you're never going to experience the storms again, but that you'll have a firm foundation, a rock to build your life on, and that rock will be there with you like a lighthouse, always shining just enough light so that you can walk forward with just enough hope so that you can take that next step and just enough sustenance so that you'll never starve along the path. And I find this a really humble promise. Uh, you know, especially in, uh, in the age of, of, you know, 10 steps to being the best of everything. I find the promise of yoga really humble and really real and something that delivers. Only if you keep your end, which is you got to keep doing the practice. So remember, remember abhyasa in moments of doubt and in moments where you don't feel like doing the practice. Recognize a couple of things. First of all, five minutes a day counts as practice. Could you commit to doing five minutes a day, six days a week for the rest of your life? Five minutes a day. I've talked my mom into this recently, which I'm really proud of, actually, because I, I, you know, my mom's in her 70s and she's never done yoga before and she's someone that places herself last among all things. You know, she's got her work and she was taking care of my dad when my dad was sick for a very long time and she's, you know, has, has some physical ailments that I really believe the practice could help her with, but I couldn't call it, call it you know, I didn't teach her any Sanskrit. I had to add an extra movement in the sun salutations. Don't call the yoga police on me for that one. But, you know, you got to adjust the practice to where we all are, right? And, uh, and then so instead of the sun salutations, I, I told her there are only, you got to do 10 movements. Can you remember 10? So she calls sun salutation A the 10. And she's committed to doing her 10, her 10 movements at least once, once a day, which I think is pretty cool. So if you think about that, could you make that commitment six days a week for the rest of your life, five minutes a day? That's all. Nothing more than that. Just a little bit longer than your electric toothbrush, right? Three minutes, electric toothbrush, five minutes a day. Could you do that six days a week for the rest of your life? It's not a big ask. And then days that you don't do it, forgive yourself. But think about that. On those days when you feel like, I can't do full primary series, it's too long. I can't do a 90 minute sweaty practice. I can't drag myself out, it's too much. 
five minutes, just go on your mat, do something, move, do the sun salutations, sit in lotus or some version of lotus, lie on your back over a bolster and breathe five minutes a day on your mat for the rest of your life. This constitutes practice. The one defining element that should be there for those five minutes is a sincere effort to steady and strengthen the mind and to direct the mind into the inner experience. That should be the thread that ties through every practice. Because if you come to practice and you spend those five minutes writing emails while you're in pigeon pose, that doesn't really count. You know, if you spend those five minutes while you're lying on the bolster, you know, watching Grey's Anatomy on the TV or on your iPad, that doesn't really count, you know? So you want to, the only real qualification is that those five minutes need to be directed towards the true and deepest intention of yoga, which is to experience the depths of the inner being, the depths of who you are. What do you say? May you take the challenge? Maybe that's the real yoga challenge, huh? So with that in mind, we're going to get started in practice. But what I'd like to do is, um, uh, what I'd like to do is to end our little talk today with, uh, with another of the traditional chants. And this would be the first refrain of the Guru Stotram. And I always like to include the Guru Stotram because I wouldn't be here today without my teachers and without the amazing lineage of teachers and senior Ashtanga yoga practitioners that have come before me and all of the yogis of times past. And I'm so grateful that I've had the chance to go over to India and to practice in the traditional sense. And I feel, I feel just really blessed to have had that, had that opportunity in my life. And I know not everyone does or will have that opportunity. So this mantra is really meant to invoke that tradition of gratitude, of thanks, and also to kindle a little bit of fire in your heart and to awaken the seed of sincere spiritual practice so that uh, it will be a light for you as you continue down the path. So if you'll bring your hands together. that talk with Kino. It was inspiring and insightful as always from Kino. She gave this talk at one of our classes at Miami Life Center. She teaches her students here once a month and lately she's been doing these Dharma talks which we're recording all of them so you guys can listen to here on our podcast. This month her class is October 24th. She'll be doing a Dharma talk 
meditation and a yoga class. Uh, it's available for free for our members, but we open it up to anybody who'd like to join. So if you're interested in joining us, you can find more info and sign up on our website, www.miamilivecenter.com. Namaste.